Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. According to biblical tradition, those are the words of King David, written after he was confronted with his sin of adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, the wife of a very loyal and fine officer in his army. Overwhelmed, almost completely overwhelmed by his failure, by his sin, he sits down, the tradition says, and writes these words and renew, create. The word create there in the Hebrew is bara. It's also a word that's found in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth, when God barad, as we might say, all that is. The word literally means to create out of nothing, out of emptiness. Remember in Genesis 1, it says the earth was formless and void. There was a chaotic mess upon the land. And it's in that emptiness, that chaos, where God creates all that we see around us, including you and me. In the same way, David is inviting God to come into his life and in that empty, broken, and wounded place, create something new. Think of that word this morning. Consider what it's asking us to face. Is there ever a moment in your life when you feel as though you're surrounded by emptiness? I received a note not too long ago from a friend in California, a single mom, divorced, a couple of kids. She's barely staying ahead of the bills, barely has enough money to buy food for their table, can, cannot even keep up with her children and their schedules and all that is required of her. And she wrote to me and she said, is this, is this all there is? I just feel so empty. So empty. Is this all that life brings? And then at the end, nothing. Or, or perhaps you're someone whose life is constantly filled with chaos. Maybe you're like the young parents. I spoke to at least four parents this week, all of whom had the same, almost the exact same story, saying to me, Glenn, I, I can't keep up with my life, my kids, and all the things that we have to do between soccer and baseball and drama and dance and band and orchestra and choir and all the rest. I've never seemed to be ever have a moment where I could just relax and just be. I remember when Julie and I and our boys were, were growing up, they're in their 20s now. You'll get to meet them in a couple of weeks. But when they were going through school, Julie and I would literally have to sit down every night of the week and compare calendars and make sure, okay, you've got that one. I've got this one. What about, oh, yeah, I'll get that one. Every night. It was chaos. It was crazy. Or, like David, is your chaos, your emptiness, something that has been created by your own foolish mistake, a, a terrible decision. I, I don't know you well enough to know, but I suspect maybe some of us too. If you answer yes to, to, these, to any or all of these questions, then I have good news for you. The Spirit of God is ready, even in this moment now, to fill that void, to fill that place to invite you to a new life. We gotta be careful though, this is not super mag supernatural magic. We can't just say the okie dokie, abracadabra words and poof, everything goes away and everything's fine now, it's okay, that's all we needed to do. No, 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 not at all. This bit of poetry invites us, it calls us to take a deep and honest look at who we are, to carefully see in our lives, where is it that we're, God's spirit is needed the most?
the new creation begins when we recognize that we are in need of something new. But it's not easy, though. The temptation in a moment like this is to really look at somebody else and say, oh, did, did you see how she was behaving? Well, look at the way he acts, is to find someone else. Jesus wrote about this 2,000 years ago. He said, we have this inclination to point out the speck in the other's eye while there's a log protruding from our own. That's an ancient Near Eastern, Near Eastern joke, but it makes a strong point. It's so easy for us to find the problem in someone else's life, to point that out. I loved going to church when I was a little boy, and I really loved going to church with my grandparents, especially my grandmother, Violet. They went to this large, strong building, this large church in downtown Long Beach, California, the first Christian church. They had at least 1,200 seats, I think, in the sanctuary. There was a huge dome up at the top. They didn't have just one balcony. They had two balconies. This place was gigantic, and they filled it up every Sunday at 9 and 11 o'clock. Well, one, one week, my mom and dad were on vacation, and I was staying with my grandparents. So my grandma small, she took me to church. My grandfather was involved in the, in the leadership of the church, so he was usually up at the front somewhere. I was sitting there in the pew with my grandma, just so happy to be in this big church. I felt like it was a really strong church. Boy, oh boy, it was great to be there. My dad's churches were always small. My dad, who was a pastor, his congregations were always small. I remember sitting there, I remember this, this, this one time like it was yesterday. My grandmother just handed me a little piece of candy, kind of keep me quiet during the worship service. And just before it started, a woman came in and she sat down right in front of us. A young woman, about the age of my mom, maybe 31 or 32. And she had a little boy, my age too, I guessed, seven years old or so, sat down right in front of my grandma and me. A minute passed, and then another. The prelude was just about over when a woman seated to my left leaned across and in front of me over to my grandmother and said in a stage whisper loud enough for everyone to hear, she's divorced, you know. Why is she here? Now that church's theology was one that was based on judgment and punishment and guilt. And you can imagine how that created those sort of com comments in the, in the pews. That young mom, though, I saw her drop her head. I could see that she was crying. Five minutes later, as the first hymn was being sung, she took her little boy by the hand and they walked out of that church. That congregation no longer exists. The building's been torn down. There's a parking mall there now. But still, it's easy for us to maybe say, oh, look at, look at how those with that rigid kind of angry theology, look at how judgmental they can be. But it's frankly a temptation for all of us, for any of us to point out somebody else, to point out their flaws, their weaknesses, to point at the speck in their eye while ignoring the one in our own. We are not a congregation. We are not a congregation that focuses on punishment and judgment and guilt, and we will not become one like that ever. I can guarantee you that I can promise that. However, I've yet to meet anyone in this church or any other place where I've been who is perfect, who hasn't stumbled or fallen along the way at some point in their lives. And I said this morning, I said this at the nine o'clock service, if there is anyone out there who is perfect, would you please introduce yourself to me at the end of the service? And sure enough, this, this, this little old guy, not very tall, I think about 80 years old, he came up, he shook my hand, he said, I'm the guy, I'm the one. <laughs> I'm gonna call his wife later and see if that's true. No, we're not a congregation that, that worries about, about punishment and judgment and guilt, but we wanna be honest enough to look at ourselves at who we really are, at how we live, 
Psalm 51 confronts us individually. It wants to look at the messiness of our own lives so that we can discover the new creation that God wants us to become. As I said, the words of Psalm 51 are, are, are attributed by tradition to King David and his confession of sin following his affair with Bathsheba. His words speak across the centuries, really, to anyone, and that would be everyone, who's ever fallen or stumbled, not quite found the way, sometimes even found themselves on a pathway named sin. The inspiration for this sermon today comes from my buddy Mike Iaconelli's book written in 2003 titled Messy Spirituality. Mike was a tremendous youth worker, a tremendous speaker, just a brilliant guy. But he opens the first, uh, the very first line in his book says, my life is a mess. Now, I knew Mike back in the 90s. We served on the board of Amore Ministries. We got to be really good friends. And he wrote this book, frankly, just before he died. I always, always wanted to talk to him after he wrote the book and say, Mike, your life is a mess. Are you kidding? You're my hero. Back when I was in high school, he was the famous youth minister in Southern California. Everyone wanted to be like Mike. And then in the 80s, he started a new ministry and started a new business called Youth Specialties. He's very successful, did very well, preached all around the world. And yet, in 2003, right before his life would be taken in a car accident, he writes, my life, my life is a mess. But you see, Mike, Mike liked to talk about the myth of trying to fix ourselves, of trying to pretend like everything's okay even when they aren't. For example, Mike and I shared a similar, a similar experience. When, when Julie and I moved to Kansas City, she was working full-time for the court-appointed special advocates group. I was working, of course, full-time at the church. Our boys, who were in grade school and middle school back then, were very, very busy, very chaotic kind of life, as you might understand. And we decided, you know what? We can actually afford a housekeeper. Let's hire a housekeeper to come in on Monday mornings. That was my day off. We can go out to breakfast and enjoy some time away while she cleans the house, give her four hours to do the house clean. Worked out fine for a while, except for this. She'd come in on Monday mornings. I began to dread Sunday nights. <laughs> Think about it. You know what we had to do on Sunday nights? We had to clean the house so the housekeeper <laughs> wouldn't see how messy we were. And we do the same silly thing, don't we, in our own lives? We pretend and we clean up and we look good and everything's fine. How are things with you? It's great. How's it with you? Great. Everything's fine. Good. Fine. And there's no relationship built. There's no honest conversation about who we really are. We hide and we pretend. There's an article last week in in the New York Times that really confirms this point. It, it, it did some research, the author did some research on Facebook. There's a concern now, there's a syndrome connected to Facebook that people get depressed when they go on Facebook and look at how wonderful everyone else's life is. Have you heard about this? You can read it in the New York Times, it was last week. They go on Facebook and what does everyone show on Facebook? Here I am with my beautiful wife, my two perfect children, our lovely dog and our beautiful home, everything's great. And people look and see just post after post after post on Facebook of all these perfect, wonderful families, and they just think, my life is terrible. I'm never going to live up to all my friends on Facebook. The research showed, though, that if you compare what people post on Facebook to what people search for on Google, one is public, one is private, that we begin to see the more, uh, more honest picture of the reality of our lives. For example, the researchers used this phrase, my husband is. On Facebook, these were the top five responses on Facebook to my husband is. My husband is the best. My husband 
is my best friend. My husband is amazing. My husband is the greatest. My husband is so cute. <laughs> you can check Julie Miles' Facebook page later. She does not live up to that research, just so you know. <laughs> but on Google, now listen to this. On Google, here are the top four ways to complete that phrase. My husband is. Number one was amazing. Well, that confirms some. The rest, a jerk, annoying, and mean. Do you see, do you see how revelatory that is? We put out there this perfect world when inside we're wrestling and struggling and working. A messy spirituality unveils the myth of flawlessness and calls on Christians everywhere to come out of hiding, to stop pretending, to be the kind and gracious persons that God invites us to be. I, I would suspect, I, again, I don't know you well enough, but I would suspect that right now you're sitting next to someone. I'm just guessing. That has an empty part in their soul. You might be sitting next to somebody right now who's afraid, scared to death almost, that you might know who they really are. Psalm 51 invites us to treat that person with kindness and grace, recognizing that what hurts you and me at the end of the day are the same. But like I said, this is sometimes too hard. Sometimes it's just, it's just too difficult. We, we want to avoid uh, confronting our actual selves and instead put it off on someone else. There was a church in, in South Carolina that decided to put on an Easter pageant to the whole story of Jesus from Holy Week, the beginning of Holy Week on Palm Sunday all the way through the resurrection on Easter Sunday. They recruited members of the church to play all the different parts, but they went out into the town, this little small town, and they got the meanest, toughest, angriest old guy to play Jesus. No one liked this guy. He was mean. Everyone tried to avoid him, but they thought, let's have him play Jesus. Maybe that'll kind of help us to get to know him a little better and, and him us. So the play is being presented. It's gone pretty well. It comes up to Friday. The man playing Jesus is doing well. He's carrying the cross. Remember the scene on Friday morning as Jesus is carrying his own cross where he's going to be put to death? The crowd is screaming at him, yelling at him. It's, it's, it's the members of the congregation who are playing the mob. They're getting right in the man's face, and they're screaming at him. One man gets up to him and says, crucify him, crucify him. And he says it a third time, crucify him, really loud. And sprays spit all over that man's face. The man playing Jesus, he sets the cross down, and he says, I'll see you after the resurrection. <laughs> I love that story. I, I want to be that guy. I want to live that way. I want to live my life that way. Put you in your place. I'll see you later. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? First thing he says after the resurrection, do you remember? Peace be with you. He extends his hands so they can see the wounds. He invites Thomas, who was full of doubt and fear, to touch his side. With a spear wounded him, he displays his feet, wounded as they are. You see, Jesus meets us, not in our flawlessness, but in our wounds, our brokenness, our emptiness. In the second line of the reading that Deb did a moment ago, David cries out, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That word, that phrase, abundant mercy, comes from the Hebrew word racham. It's rooted in the word racham a Hebrew word that literally means womb. 
it confirms a couple things. One, it shows the, the feminine side of God's nature, but it also shows that what this, what this man caught up in his own sin needs more than anything else is the overflowing, ever-connected, forever-connected love of a mother. It's almost like he's crying out and saying, I need my mother. I need my mother to hold me tight and let me know that she will never let me go. I know a mom whose oldest son was not an easy child. Just about from the day he was born through his early childhood, he was just difficult beyond belief. In kindergarten, within the first week, they'd gotten a note. She'd gotten a note telling her how hard her son was to deal with. He was sent home from school time and time again, even up to third grade. He was still having all these problems. He was mean and angry with his parents, refused to cooperate. Just a difficult, difficult child. One night, the father came home after a long day of meetings at the church where he was. Came into the house, and it was completely dark. Went to the kitchen, found some iced tea, poured a glass of tea. Walked quietly down the hallway, expecting that he would find his wife asleep in their bedroom. But he noticed off to the side, there was a little nightlight in their boy's room. So he stopped, and he went inside, and he could see his wife sitting next to their son. She was on the floor. He was sound asleep in his bed, and she was just gently caressing his hair, just caressing his hair. The man went in and sat down by his wife and whispered to her, what, what are you doing? As she continued to caress his hair, she said, I'm loving him in the dark because he won't let me love him in the light. God is whispering to you in the darkness of your soul, in that place where you want no one ever to see. God goes to that very place, whispers across the heavens, I love you. I love you. You're my child. My buddy Scott says that it's not what God will do, it's what God is doing that gives rise to hope. It's not what God will do, it's what God is doing that gives rise rise to hope within our souls. David in Psalm 51 is weighed down by his guilt. He feels lost and disconnected from the very God of heaven. Guilt, by the way, is never the last word, but it can often be one that helps us to a new life. The problem is we experience guilt and we sometimes just stay there. We just get stuck. Guilt ought to be, if anything, a bridge from the past behavior to the future hope. If you walk across that bridge, the guilt is where? It's left behind. So often we get stuck in it. We don't need find the skill and the courage that we need to, to move forward. And even worse than that, sometimes we mix guilt with shame, and that leads to even more terrible things. Guilt, when confronted with love, fades into the past. There was a couple, and I'm going to close with this. Their names were Vincent and Marilyn. They were not looking for a relationship, but a relationship found them. They fell deeply, madly in love with each other. Overwhelmingly so. So much so that Marilyn became quite frightened. They were several months into this, this deep love for one another when Marilyn decided she needed to tell Vincent about her life and who she really was. This is kind of hard to talk about on a Sunday morning, but she was a high-end prostitute. A terrible life, one that she felt stuck in and demeaned by and demoralized by over and over again. She has no hope. She has no hope for her future. 
Her love for Vincent, though, tells her that she needs to call on her best self and she needs to reveal who she really is to him so that their relationship is not marred if the truth suddenly and, and, and unwantedly comes out later. She realizes she must tell him who she is and how she lives her life. They go to lunch and they're having a nice lunch. He's just smiling at her, looking at her, and she says, Vincent, we need to talk. He says, we don't need to talk. I'm happy to just sit here and, and look at your face, to adore your beautiful eyes. She drops her head. She says, but Vincent, we need to talk. He hears the urgency in her voice. He sets his fork down. He says, well, please do then. And she confesses everything to him. She tells him who she is and what she does, how she makes a living. Vincent is overwhelmed. Tears are in his eyes. He, his body starts to shake. His, his lip is quivering. He's biting on his lip, as a matter of fact, to keep himself from sobbing. And he's trying to say something to her, though. He's mumbling through the, through the quivers and the sobs. He's mumbling something, mumbling, mumbling, mumbling. She said, Vincent, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to hurt you. I'm so sorry. I can't believe. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please, please, please. Finally, the mumbling stops, and he gets himself under composure. He says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. She's shocked by this. She expected punishment and judgment. Instead, Vincent can do nothing but love her. This breaks something up deep within her soul. She begins to gulp air in, in huge breaths. She too then begins to sob. The tears fall down her face. She takes a hold of his hands and holds them tightly. They pull their faces against each other and it becomes a baptism of tears, a baptism of grace, of new life, of newfound love. She went to him expecting judgment and punishment. Instead, he treated her the way Jesus would. He weeps. He forgives. He understands. Now, if your life, if your life is on one nice, wonderful, smooth ascent into this great place where everything is wonderful and perfect, well, God bless you. Thank you, Jesus, and keep on going. But if there's some part of you, and your pastor's on this list too, if there's some part of you where you desperately need to allow the messiness of spirituality to invade you, the Spirit of God to take over you, the Spirit of the loving God we worship to fill you, then I have good news for you. That Spirit, that love, that grace, that mercy, it's already here for you for me, for us, for the world. Amen.